Welcome to The Savvy Founder, the one place for entrepreneurs and business owners, away from the everyday bustle, where we help you find your path to a profitable and bright future. Now here's your host, The Savvy Founder and armchair sociologist himself, Philip Topham. Hello and welcome to The Savvy Founder. I'm Philip Topham, your host. I am totally stoked. We're going to have Steve Silver here today from the middle of the country in the heartland. And uh, welcome. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And where exactly is the heartland? Oh, I don't even know. I mean, <laughs> I know where I'm at. I don't know if it's considered heartland, but we're in uh, Southern Ohio officially right now. So uh, I, that's probably pretty close to the middle. We get out a little ruler and see where it's at. It's great. Uh, You and I got connected through the proverbial uh, entrepreneurial network, right? Talking to people and saying who who knows who and and, and how do we get connected? And uh, part of the, uh, you you have been part of the Orange County startup community and and the New York startup community and a bunch of others and and seen a a lot of perspective. And we'll, we'll get into that. What, uh, to introduce the audience, though, to you, why don't we start with a little bit about your journey of how did you get into this whole startup world? Sure. So, yeah, right after college, I went to actually Babson College in, in Boston, uh, studied entrepreneurship there. And I think I'm one of maybe a handful of kids in our class that ended up pursuing entrepreneurship fully. So it's been a ride, I'll tell you that. Um, yeah. So. I immediately just wanted to jump right into angel investing, not myself, but trying to work for angel investors. Um, so started my career with the Orange County Angel Group, um, worked there for a number of years and kind of just got the itch to seeing all these entrepreneurs get funding and uh, pitching and helping them with their pitches. I thought that that would be just a really exciting thing to start it on my own. So um basically started a program working with entrepreneurs, going through funding, helping them get funding, um, building out, you know, their digital assets. Like if it was a software company, uh, we would develop out SaaS platforms and everything in between. Um, So that led me into web development, online marketing for all my clients as well. And that really gave me the ability to, pursue now that I have a team of programmers, sort of our ideas and what we wanted to do as a company in creating a new company. Um, So throughout the years, uh, you know, I ended up selling that company uh, and didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, So I'd come across uh, a number of networking groups and I was always a big networker and I loved getting out there and organizing events. And I think that's that social aspect is really the core of of me and what my passions are and getting out and talking to people, learning about their ideas and that sort of thing. So um, met my future business partner, uh, Joe Rubin, who runs Funding Post, who started it. And uh, we would put on events all over the country. I sort of started to take over doing the events for him because he had young kids and I was free to roam. And so we went, we had events in, I think it was like 
15, 16 something different cities around the country. Um, you know, my home turf was Southern California, Northern California, doing events up and down the coast every month. Um, and that we were working on that up until the pandemic, basically. So our last event, I believe you were at it. And I think we realized later that we, we were both there. I put on was so- SoCal Startup Day. Yeah. Yep. I was there. And I think that was the the first, the biggest and the last event of that year. It was February 26, 2020. And um, it's been difficult since then, not being able to get out there and network and do what we do best. So, um, yeah. Right. Yes. I mean, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. We'll, we'll start at that point forward, but in that early part, so you got to see lots of different cities in putting on these events. If you reflect back, well, is there any, do, do the different cities have different vibes? Do they have different ways of doing business? You know, if I'm an entrepreneur and I am in a different city, do I have to do things differently? Or, or are entrepreneurs a great, a different, I mean, or, or are entrepreneurs just like the same everywhere? They're definitely not. And that's a great question because, you know, I think Southern Californians, Californian entrepreneurs can relate to, they've probably been pitching in the Bay Area compared to Southern California. I think Southern California wants to have that mentality from the investor side, but, uh, you know, creating like Silicon um, Alley, you know, all, all the different regions down here compared to up there, but it's clear difference. So, you know, you go to Austin and you see not so much a difference in pitching, whereas you would between Southern California, Northern California, and New York as an entrepreneur in an early stage, it's pretty much all very similar. Obviously, if you just have an idea, um, you know, if it's good enough, you might be able to attract funding in, in Silicon Valley, right? It's been done before, just an idea with nothing really operating. Uh, but whereas you can never do that in Southern California, you'd be laughed out the door. So um, New York, similarly, and I, most of my time, in the past six years has been in New York. So well, eight years now. So um, I've really grown accustomed to sort of the New York thing. And we worked on building syndicates in New York because, you know, with all the angel groups and it, and then different types of investors, it's so diversified and there's so little communication. Um, I actually worked with Westchester Angels founder, Sandy Woolman, and we ha- sort of organized a group called the New York Area Alliance angels, I believe. So the NAAA, and it's basically a representative from each one of the groups, um, one or two. And there's about 60, I believe, different angel groups and VCs that are on that call each month sharing, all right, last month we invested in X, Y, and Z, going through that and syndicating those deals. So that's sort of an example of great stewardship amongst the angels groups, the investors, the VCs, in being able to do that because it's really in their own benefit. Sure. And, sure. you know, Archangel invested in um, Oculus, which is, you know, one of the top fastest growing tech companies. It's, so hey, let me interrupt you right there, Stephen. Uh, what's Arc? Arc. All right. So I've been in New York for really the last eight years and about 15 years ago, Joe, 
Ruben, my partner at Funding Post, started a, an angel fund. And it consists, originally it was about 20 investors. And I believe the fund was around a million dollars for the first fund. And it wasn't until around the second fund that I got involved. And basically, we're a group of 60 or so investors that all pool an investment, usually 50 or $100,000 into the fund. And every single month, we get together and do what you would do at an angel, angel group. You know, we, we have some food and drinks and sit around listening to a bunch of entrepreneurs with some great ideas that we've pre-vetted. And um, I, I guess what I've learned in a- actively running the fund is how important working together, working together with other investors is because um, it's so powerful when you have, and especially like a, a lead investor come in and refer you out to all the different groups. And I mean, that was really the goal of creating the New York Area Alliance of Angels. Um, and when you could have 150 people on the phone call, each one representing a different investor or group or family fund, whatever it might be, um, everybody has a voice and is able to really get rounds done. Right. So um, some of our best investments only happen because we were able to syndicate so well within that group. Because, you know, ARC, it, it's a small fund. It's about $3 million. And which, by the way, we just launched our third fund. So that's active. We're actively taking in deals. So if any of your viewers have, want to check it out, it's at uh, arcangelfund.com. And yeah, we'll have it in the show notes. Twitter. Perfect. Um, so yeah, I, I, I see a ton of value when investors and different groups work together instead of apart. And I, I think from what I've been keeping my pulse on Southern California, it sounds like we're seeing some of that going on there. Yes, there's uh, not to go into that too much, but yeah, there's there's been more syndication happening or cross collaboration uh, within the region. Uh, certainly, we have the the Tech Coast Angels and Pasadena Angels. They're they're now uh, collaborating together. Uh, although the San Diego Angels have, have pulled uh, pulled away more separately, uh, and and you know they're just reflective of the regional differences within the startup community, which is where I was, you know, sort of asking, you know, the different cities is the entrepreneur, what you're saying, and and correct me if I'm wrong, the entrepreneurs come up with the ideas, they engage people the same way, they're all trying to figure it out. But the way then the capital organizes itself behind the scenes is different in each place. And so people have to engage that differently. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. And I mean, every region has its history, right? So yeah. when you're talking about San Francisco, that type of fundraising might suit a deal much better than Southern California or New York even. Um, and also you have to look at the the market, right? So you have San Diego and now even Irvine, Orange County is getting a lot more life sciences and med tech and that sort of thing. Uh, whereas in New York, you're seeing a lot more, you know, finance based just you know, hardcore traditional type startups, you know, whether it be insurance or anything along those lines. Um, so you see a different type of deal. And then you go to Miami and uh, that, that's totally different. LA, you get a lot of entertainment, that sort of thing. So it's interesting. Very nice. Uh, let's uh, round back to the ARC fund. 
What's your what's your thesis? Do you have an investment thesis? Is particular industry, particular size, particular region? We went into this really not having a core thesis based on what type of opportunity we're looking at. It really is most of the time uh, the opportunities at the right time. Um, since we're only investing fifty or hundred thousand, sometimes you know a couple hundred thousand dollars, that's not really going to put us in a position to lead around. And um, a lot of these opportunities that we're looking at, we want to pre-qualify them so we're not wasting people's time if it's not a fit for the fund. Uh, just like any investor you go to, you want to do your research. And one of the things we're looking for is that you have traction, you know, revenue, and that can eliminate a lot of uh, seed startups and early stage startups. Um, but although it's not easy, uh, you, a lot of companies really need to get to that point to see success in fundraising these days. Um, you got to put in that sweat equity, that seed investment, whether you make it or you get it from friends and family, get the company to a point where you have something, some meat on the bones there and you're really able to show something. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, you know, as we've been having this conversation, you've been very modest in, in all that you've done with the shows that you put on across all the cities. And then you ended up in, in New York and stepped into the other side of the aisle with, with starting your own business. So how did it go from, Hey, I'm, I'm over here organizing events, uh, helping startups, doing pitches. And you ended up with a, a, you know, putting on fully the entrepreneur hat. Well, that all happened because of the networking, right? So over the years, um, you get to know a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, and they keep on coming back. And sometimes even if they don't have a venture they're working on or they go to the corporate world or, or they hit it big, they just want to hang out and be around that community that helped them build that. Um, so I came across actually my business partner. And at the time I had, it was just by chance. Uh, she had a lingerie company she was pitching and uh, that was what she was working on at the time. And just out of the blue, I had a doctor, a plastic surgeon come up to me and say, you know, hey, there's no good products on the market for post-surgical bras. Uh, when a woman's getting any sort of breast surgery, whether it's cancer or reductions or implants, whatever it might be. And I kind of told him, well, you know, I'm not in the space of making bras, but I'll keep an eye out. And it just so happened I had met Rachel McCreary, our co-founder, for what happened to be now a company eight years later, and things are just had been taking off. So um, through all that networking, through funding post, actually, that put our core team together for the company I'm talking about, which is Infraware, and our main product is called the RX Bra. So we were really trying to position ourselves as a super high-end, uh, heavily engineered piece of post-surgical garment. And by engineered, I mean, we actually have a patented yarn fabric per se that increases blood circulation, oxygenation, and really aids in the healing process. Got it. So we, we wanted to be the top tier brand, um, the go-to post-surgical bra um, on the market. And it turned out, you know, with my background in web and online marketing, within 
a matter of three months, we were number one on Google organically. Um, you know, our biggest competitor at the time just was acquired for $60 million and is a post-surgical garment manufacturer. And, you know, they just didn't have the edge. They were stuck in the olden days where the old they're, school. they're just too, too big and clunky to really go after the SEO and attack the market. So we saw some really strong early on uh, traction there. And um, we actually at one point went for funding and we went and pitched this and um, we were on entrepreneur elevator pitch actually. And Rachel closed a deal with uh, one of the investors. Uh, and I think it was for about $250,000, but we ended up not taking the money um, and just self-funding it and continuing to grow our marketing and throw that money back into advertising. Got it. So qu quite the remarkable story, right? Yeah. So you hear, hear you're, you know, around entrepreneurs, you're having conversations and you end up becoming a full-fledged entrepreneur because of, of the trust that you had and the, and seeing the opportunity you were, you were, were aware that something happened uh, and, and built that business. Help me understand though, so many people say, "Hey, I, I I raised quarter of a million dollars. Let's take the money, right? That, that's that's like the you know, uh, how many events have we been at where the entrepreneur thinks that's the payday when they get the person say yes? And so, why did you turn it down? What what you know, was it a hard decision or was it an easy decision? Uh, there are so many different reasons for that, um, and there can be so many different reasons for that, but. Um, Sometimes it's the investor themselves and maybe they have a different vision or a different goal for your future than you have. Um, they can come in and say, look, this didn't happen to us, but look, we want to move in this direction. Let's move away from X and go to Y. And that might not be the right decision. It might be, but if, you don't, if you're not on board with their vision and what they want to do, them saying, I'll give you a quarter million dollars if you, you know, turn off and veer off this way. Yeah. So, um, so what I hear you saying is, uh, as long as you know what you intend to build with your business, then the decision's easy. You know, if somebody waves a bunch of money at you and says, "Here, you know, build something differently," then that you know, you know, if, if you take the money, you're you're now a mercenary. You're not building right. what you, you what you really intend. And and you know, a lot of times, if you're gonna get smart money, let's say like a VC or somebody that's a really experienced investor. And they're going to take, they're going to generally at that point, take a big chunk of the company. Obviously the deal might not be right. They might want too much equity and I'm not going to cut that deal. It's a bad deal. Um, and third off, we weren't desperate for money. We didn't need it. We just were at the point where <clears throat> if we put in, you know, a dollar into marketing and we get $4 out, let's flip that all day long and throw in a million dollars in the marketing and aim for $4 million out. Um, and that was sort of the decision at the point where we realized that we don't need it and we're going to give up a good chunk of the company. Got it. So. Yeah. Yep. Those are, those are, uh, you know, heart wrenching decisions, but yeah, what's, what makes right for the business and for the founders It's absolutely uh, appreciate your sharing with that. And, and so let's, let's move forward. And so you've, you've got the medical Brock product company working well, you're, you're deep in the trenches. And then what happened next? 
Well, we were, we were in New York city. Um, and this is 2019. We found out we were going to, me and my wife, we're going to have a, a kid and we were just getting prepared to try to move out of the city, find a house in, in the suburbs and, you know, deciding if we could maybe potentially uh, look at different areas. And we must've looked at 60 or 70 different houses and apartments outside the city. And we just realized we can't be in this shoebox and have a screaming baby and I'm working from home. It just wasn't going to work. So um, after really going through and trying to find a place, we just couldn't find anything and uh, ended up having our first uh, kid. Her, her name's Darby. And um, that was when COVID hit. It was actually right after SoCal Startup Day, um, two years ago, pretty much the day, uh, March 6th, 2020. And that was right after our SoCal Startup Day event. And she was worried with the pregnancy that, you know, I might have to just leave the event and fly an emergency flight to go if she had an emergency delivery. Um, so she, we ended up back in the hospital after having uh, our daughter. And I mean, it was wild. It was out of this world. There were, the hallways were lined with doctors and just frantically running around and people on gurneys just couldn't even breathe. Um, you know, we ended up seeing those containers with, to, to bring out the bodies. And it was, it was out of, right out of a movie being stuck at, you know, one of the biggest hospital in New York city and in complete chaos. Um, and that was the decision that we decided, you know, we need to get out of here. So yeah. we, a few days after the baby was born, we literally just packed up in a rental car and drove to Southern Ohio, which is where we're at right now. And we really thought we'd be here for, you know, like a couple months and here we are two years later and we're still here. So it's been great though. I mean, the, there's th this community and raising a child in a, a rural place is a lot different than in a, in a city. So we're sure. grateful for it. Um, but that is sort of that drive. Those yeah. few days we took to drive down here was really everything settled in of what we saw with COVID and how crazy this can be. And uh, it was just a matter of a few days later that um, I believe it was something like six or seven physicians died because they didn't have the proper PPE. Um, they didn't have masks. They were using garbage bags as gowns. And um, that is something that struck a chord with me and I wanted to do something about it. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. In, in listening to you, and I get to watch you. I, I just saw you reliving that time in the hospital. So my my heartfelt uh, sympathies for what you went through. And uh, and but out of that, you you saw the doctors didn't have something. You wanted to do something about it and help them make gowns. So then, what happened? What happened then? You know, you you sort of uh, did something not everybody does. Yeah. So we were living in a hotel with a newborn for probably about a month, but we were doing it because of quarantine so that we would just not, if we ca caught anything, we would just be in quarantine. So I get a call from Rachel one day and that's my business partner with Infraware with the bra company. And she gets Joe, our other partner on the phone. And she's like, guys, I could buy a million and 95s right now. <clears throat> and we're like, what, what do you, what are you talking about? What does that have to do with anything that we're doing? She's like, guys, think about it. You know, our company 
is cleared by the FDA to import medical devices, especially on these, those levels. Um, and at the time, we have, we have a lot of connections in China with our manufacturers. And at that time, a lot of the manufacturers were allowing uh, companies that make PPE to operate in their facilities, especially a lot of these um, garment facilities that we, we have connections to. So long story short, um, we started to just make phone calls to the hospital that I was at in New York and 20 other hospitals. And every one of them was desperate for any sort of PPE. So um, there were many restless nights. I would say for about six months, I would probably get three hours of sleep a night. And we were going nonstop uh, gangbusters from seven in the morning till, you know, four in the morning, uh, because we had to deal with China and imports and everything. Um, so that taught us a lot about logistics and trying to get things in here. Um, and, and really we would have hospitals calling us and I would wake up and I'd check my bank account. And all of a sudden there's an extra $10 million in the bank account and I'm in our business account and I'm like, what is going on? So I make a call and Rachel's like, yeah, that was, you know, so-and-so hospital. They just paid us up front, hoping that we can get them the goods. Uh, they were actually looking for about a million medical gowns. Um, so I've, I've never seen anything like that in my career. Uh, I don't know if I ever will, but the desperation was so urgent to get this PPE to the doctors that um, I've healthcare systems were just throwing money at people's bank accounts uh, without even signing a PO. And it was pretty incredible. Yeah, uh, pretty remarkable and pretty amazing and, and sort of humbling, I, I'm sure, for, for for you and probably gratifying that you were able to be in that whirlwind and help so many people. And so now now that you're, you know, we're we've two years into the pandemic and we're learning to live with it, uh, the business is you know, back to bras or what's the business do today? Yeah. So we're back to bras. Um, after all the PPE craziness, um, we basically partnered with a, a manufacturer of a test kit. So that launched us into kind of a, a divide. We kept, we were continually doing the post-surgical bras. Uh, as a matter of fact, business was booming during COVID. We, our business you know, five X and I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out is everybody just bored. So they're going to get going out to get plastic surgery or I don't know what it was exactly, but um, all of the doctors who would order from us consistently were doubling, tripling their orders. So everybody's just been very busy. Um, and we actually opened up a separate business to get involved in. Uh, we designed our own uh, medical lab. Uh, it's a, level four CLIA lab um, so that we were able to process test kits uh, real time. So that company is called Gather Labs and that's operating out of LA right now. Um, so they offer, you know, we offer really real time, fastest turnaround COVID tests. So if you're an actor and you got to go on set yeah. and you can't wait four days, or if you got an emergency flight, you know, we could, we bring that time down to about four hour turnaround. Got it. So, so sort of recap, you know, in New York, see, you know, having the medical 
products, the medical reconstruction broad uh, industry products, uh, seeing the opportunity. And then you rode the Bronco, the wild ride, built it out, and now you're back to steady stuff, but you're continuing to expand that. And, and all the while you're living in the Midwest, which you would have probably, before you moved to the Midwest, thought that it was the, the desert of innovation and, and nothing there. But as you've discovered, it's, it's not quite that at all. What, what did you discover about the, the Ohio and the Midwest? Well, you know, first off, it's beautiful out here and it's great to have land and have, now we have two kids and just be able to go out in nature. And, you know, we've got beautiful national forests here and I'm right on the border of West Virginia, Kentucky and Ohio um, on the Ohio side of the river. And, you know, life's kind of funny. I've just learned to, like you said, you know, I go with the flow where life takes you and, um, I find waves to ride. I'm a big surfer and I miss surfing so bad, but uh, that analogy of riding the wave really um, hit, hits home because everywhere you go, you got to keep your eyes open. You know, who you meet, the things you see, um, different industries that are around you. And, you know, I live by the train. I have a train that goes by and it's every 10 minutes blowing its horn, but there are mile long coal trains that go by and it's just nonstop coal moving out of here. And, you know, coming, being here in coal country, really, we have, I I started to think, and I, I was flying my drone. I was doing some aerial shots last year and I looked up and across the Ohio river, which is just a quarter mile away from here, I'm looking at this huge petroleum plant. Uh, It's a marathon plant. And I just see flares going up everywhere. There's just flares, just fire shooting out everywhere. And I thought to myself, that seems like a big waste of something. I don't know what. (laughs) I don't know if we could do anything about it. So I started to research, you know, natural gas flaring, um, methane release from coal mines. Um, And I thought there's got to be a way instead of burning this to make it less harmful that you can capture that and really take over a resource that is just being wasted. Um, so, you know, that, that's led to our newest picture now. And, um, you know, our goal is really to help clean up these coal fields, which even when they're abandoned cold fields, this region has the largest, about 70% of all, coal bed methane is coming out of this region right here. So in our backyard within a 50 mile radius. So, um, you know, methane is one of the toughest greenhouse gases because it lasts so long. It's like eight to 10 years. Um, and it's depending on the source, uh, 25 to 80 times more polluting than CO2. Um, and we account for 9% of that, of, is here in the United States. And so there's gotta be a way as an entrepreneur, we can figure out how to use that wasted resource and take advantage of it. Find something that might take up um, a lot of energy that somebody's willing to pay more for than, for example, pumping the money back into the grid. And 
in that way, you know, I kind of think of myself and people, you know, like us doing this as, you know, energy pirates, you know, we're, sure. we're trying to find the lowest cost possible for this type of energy. And it's incredible. The technology has evolved so much, even in the last five years that, you know, we can even stick a fuel cell. This couldn't be done efficiently. These fuel cells uh, would deteriorate and break down too easily by when they were intaking like landfill gas, for example, or um, coal mine methane. Sure. And so they've recently added uh, a, a step to the process in fuel cells, for example, using platinum, that these things are so efficient running on such little fuel that yeah. I mean, we're you could generate three megawatts off of, you know, a teeny little pipe. So, uh, you know, just sort of recap, you, you moved out to Ohio, you're looking around at all the stuff that's there and you're seeing the natural gas being methane being burned off and you're looking at ways to reuse that and recycle it. So that's, that's where you're at with solving that problem and trying to use that to uh, make energy. Make energy and clean up these coal beds. So, you know, I never thought coming down here that there would be an opportunity, but I think what it's taught me is that no matter where you go, there's, there is opportunity. There are gaps. There are problems that can be solved. And that's what entrepreneurs do. Very nice. Wonderful story from, from being in the industry and uh, seeing the investment stuff and the arc of big cities and putting on events and then being your own entrepreneur and then moving out to the Midwest and still having that, that seeing opportunities. Uh, a lesson for us all if you were to be able to go back to your, to your younger self a little bit and, and, you know, is there anything you would ad, ad, give advice to yourself that would have shortened your own journey or you don't need to shorten your journey? What, what do you say to your younger self? I've just keep on pursuing your passion. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be, you know, not that bras are my passion, but I, I never thought I would be in the industry of selling bras and, it turned out to be every decision I made led me to where I am today and I wouldn't want it any other way. So I think the message would be stick to your gut. Don't give up. That's the biggest thing. Do not give up. Keep on pushing and it'll all work out. What's meant to be will be. Beautiful. With that, the time has flown by. Thank you very much, Steve, for sharing your startup savvy founder journey with other founders. Really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for what you do. This is great. Excellent. For all of you listening, if, you, if you've saw, heard something that shortened your journey today, gave you some pause of, hey, I'm like that. That's just who I am. Give you the passion to move forward and jump over hurdles then share it with another founder so they too can shorten their journey. Leave a five-star review. I'm Philip Topham, the Savvy Founder, wishing you a bright and profitable future in both your personal and business lives. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Be sure to subscribe and check out our website for tips, thesavvyfounder.com. You can also follow Philip on Clubhouse at The Savvy Founder, wishing you a profitable and bright future. Safe journeys. See you next week.